Good morning, what's left of you? We don't have a, enough Presbyterians for a hand of cards, do we? But I'm very glad to welcome all of you who have avoided having fun so you could be with us. <laughs> That's maybe not what I wanted to say. The peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And now let us turn our hearts and our minds to the worship of Almighty God. Our first reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, the 6th chapter, 12 through 23. Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been freed from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, the 10th chapter, 40 through 42. Jesus said, whoever welcomes you welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. This is the word of the Lord. When I returned from my vacation in uh, Pennsylvania at the music festival last week, Kathy fixed me with one of her steely glares and said to me, 
It's 4th of July. Do not preach anything political. And I whined a little, and I said, well, what can I preach about then? And she snapped right back, sin, you're again it. <laughs> We're going to look at sin, whatever that is. That everybody knows what sin is. It's those things we do which hurt others and which we later regret, even though that other person who got hurt clearly had it coming. It's what our enemies do just for pure meanness sake and what we do because we have good justifiable reasons to act that way. It might surprise you to learn that the Apostle Paul takes a different view. In my week at seminary this year, Dr. Jerry Sumney of Lexington Theological Seminary commented that Paul rarely uses the word sin in the plural as in a list of bad things the children of God are not supposed to do. When Paul speaks of sin, it is as a singular noun. And he argues that sin can't be a list of bad things people might uh, do because those would be sins, plural. When Paul speaks of sin, he addresses it as if it were an, in, an entity invading our world and manifesting itself in the bad things people do. He writes, Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Sin, as if it were an entity. There is something desperately wrong with our world. And Paul calls that something, capital S, singular, sin. Rather than thinking of sin as something so small as just the bad things people do, Paul says that we're to think of sin as systemic. We're trapped in a world in which sin reigns, a world which offers us only evil choices. Suppose you went to Walmart after you leave here, and you find a sharp-looking shirt for $15.95. Now keep that amount of money in your mind. That's the price of the shirt you want to buy, $15.95. Now, for that shirt to be in your local Walmart, someone had to truck it there from a warehouse somewhere. The truck driver had to be paid, and the trucking company had to have its profit and overhead covered. The truck driver, or the, uh, someone had to put it on the shelf, and someone had to be paid, that someone had to be paid, not to speak of the overhead on the store. Even before that local delivery man, it had to be trucked to the warehouse from a port to which it had been transported on a ship maintained by who knows how many sailors. Of course, to be put on that ship, it had to be trucked from the place in China or India where it was made. Each of those entities had to be paid. Who made your shirt? What were they paid? Most importantly, were they children? In our world, the answer to that last question is quite often yes. A child in China or India worked long hours to make your fresh new shirt. Now, recall the price that you are going to pay, $15.95. Taking into account the long transit of that shirt by truck and then by boat, by truck again to a warehouse, thence by truck to your local Walmart. 
How much did you think that child was paid to make your shirt? This is the result of living in a world of systemic sin. Your choices are to buy the shirt knowing that many in its productions are being preyed upon to make the shirt at an affordable price or, in protest, to refuse to buy the shirt, depriving that child who made the shirt of even the pittance he might make. These are our choices. They're both evil. These evil choices are the only ones open to us because we live in a sin-ruled world. It has always been so. Paul urges the church in Rome about 54 AD, no longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Now, how are we supposed to do that? What control do we have over who make, whether or not someone in China hire, hires children to make shirts? The sin is systemic. We're trapped in it. We would like to ease the suffering of the world, but we're powerless to do so. In Paul's words, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We live in a vibrant economy. I heard it described on television this morning as the wealthiest nation in all of history. But we live in a world ruled by sin. And right now, this vibrant economy is moving us ever distant from labor and thus from the welfare of God's children. The cost of labor is an expense. For the ultimate seller, costs must be minimized or the business will fail. Inevitably, increased profits demand reduction in expense, and that means human beings out of work. What we do not address, what sin hides from us, is any consideration of the fate of those displaced by the automation and outsourcing of our economy. Where, where, where is the place for the blacksmiths, the engine wipers, the plowmen of the past? To whom do they apply for the work and hope that will make them a shareholder in the general welfare of our vibrant economy? For Paul, sin is the covert systemic power which whispers assurance to us that there is, in this instance or that, good reason to do evil things. It's a sin to kill, but sin whispers that it's okay if the one you are killing killed somebody else first, or as a citizen of a nation with which your country is at war. It's a sin to steal. But the honeyed words of sin whisper that it's okay for the pilgrims and those who came after them to take land already occupied and treat those there first as vermin. 
dropping an atomic bomb on Hiroshima and another on Nagasaki, incinerating mothers with their babies at their breasts is very evil. But it was a good thing to do, sin convinced us, because it shortened the war. Sin isn't only the bad things people do. It's the force that excuses bad things in our world. We live in a world which offers us only choices between evils. We are at once in mortal need of rescue and utterly powerless to save ourselves. All is not without hope, however. With the coming of Jesus, God is seeking reconciliation with his creation and has given his own son to do so, ushering in the hope of a world freed of sin's influence. I know that's a stretch for those who see their faith solely in terms of getting into heaven when they die, to think that we, slaves of God, have an obligation to further the salvation of the world. We have an obligation to God's creation, a command to continue the work Jesus began, the work of bringing God's hope to his creation. To do so, we must first acknowledge the presence of sin which infects the world, then consciously turn from it to the hope offered by God. Paul says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, for sanctification. The church, this church, all churches, should be the place where things don't work as they do in a world enslaved to sin, the one place in the world in which the world can see what the world to come will be and therein draw hope. Here in church, the world can see what a world not ruled by sin might come to look like. The church should be, and to God's glory, often is the only refuge from the tyranny of sin in the world and the sign of hope for all of us. With the coming of Jesus, a new world is coming into being. We used to be slaves to sin. Now we are slaves to God. We are not free, but we do have a new master. We who are baptized into Christ's death and resurrection are called to reflect this new world into the present world. We are called to reflect a world initiated by Jesus' life, death, and resurrection into a world ruled by sin and thereby offer to God's children the hope of the coming new world. Until the new world arrives in the end times, those called by God will continue to test themselves against the sin which ruled this world. And by doing so, we grow ever stronger. We don't build muscles by looking at weights in a gym. We build muscles by struggling with them. Amen. Please join with me as we affirm our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. St. Augustine was one of the seven doctors of the church, and he taught once, Charity is no substitute for justice withheld. Charity is no substitute for justice withheld. Our vibrant economy is not just. It does not provide adequately for the welfare of those displaced by automation. It does not show the love of the individual child of God which Jesus showed us. We live in a, rule, in a world ruled by sin. Lift your voice, church. Lift your voice. Until we meet again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And God's church said,